0: What are you inclined to think about the future of, of cities when we think about 2040? So when
1: we look to the future of cities and if we really want our green scenario in the context of this project to win out, we shouldn't be intimidated by complexity. In fact, we should embrace it.
2: I mean, that's the amazing thing about cities. Kind of understand each other, not only within a country, but across international borders.
3: And we will continue to build connections, not just within our borders, but also across the globe. Welcome and thank you for tuning in to Cities of 2040, a transatlantic town hall podcast. I'm your host, Stormy Annika Miltner, um, Executive Director of the Aspen Institute, Germany. Together we are embarking on an engaging journey to delve into the intricate world of urban development and explore the pivotal role cities play in shaping a brighter urban future. The United Nations projects that by 2030, nearly 600 million people will move to urban areas, reaching a total of 5.2 billion, which accounts for approximately 60% of the world's population. Our Future Cities, the Transatlantic Town Hall Initiative, has raised, um, I would say, awareness and ignited fresh perspectives among a diverse range of stakeholders. And we've created a dynamic platform for dialogue and collaboration in Berlin, Atlanta, and Los Angeles. And uh, it's the perfect time for an introspection as we approach the culmination and unfortunately also the end of our project. And to keep things exciting, um, we've lined up some fantastic guest speakers today. Um, and first of all, it is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Niklas Kosso. Uh, Niklas, you are team leader of Transformation City at City CityLab, Stiftung Berlin. Thank you, Niklas, so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. And um, it's also a very great pleasure to introduce Vishan Chagubati. And uh, Vishan, you are founder and creative director of Practice um, for Architecture and Urbanism in New York.
1: Yes, thanks for having me.
3: So before we jump right into um, into the topics um, and also look a little bit at the scenarios which our participants developed, um, Niklas, I wanted to ask you: What is CityLab, and what is the Technologie Stiftung Berlin, and what do you do there?
0: So the Technologie Stiftung is a foundation, a private foundation that exists in about thirty years. It was founded uh, amongst others by companies in Berlin, but also by the uh, Berlin Senate. Department of uh, the economy back then, but it's now independent uh, from the city, but runs projects that are financed by the city of Berlin. The Technologie Stiftung is looking at technology and urban development and on digitalization and on up- openness. And it's, tri- it's working on open source solutions, on open data solutions for the city and also on studies behind that. The City Lab, then again, is a project of the Technologie Stiftung. And it's financed by the Berlin Mayor's Office. And the City Lab Berlin is a public innovation lab. We do digitalization projects directly with the city administration, with civil society partners, with businesses as well in Berlin. We are a place where different stakeholders can come together and really think innovation, rethink the process that, they, that they're in, that they do, and where they can work on projects that can benefit the city.
3: Thank you so much, uh, Niklas. And also tell us a little bit about yourself because you're a researcher, you're a thinker, um, you're an opinion shaper and maybe you are also a little bit of a politician.
0: Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> true. I have a sort of in my night job. I, uh, uh, I am a politician for the a Social Democratic Party in Germany. I ran for the Berlin Parliament in Kreuzberg, um, but I try to usually keep that a little bit separate, at least from my job at the Technologiestiftung, <laughs> where, I, as you said, I am the team lead of the team Transformation City, Transformation Stadt. Um, we are a team of service designers and project managers. We are often come in, in early stages of projects to do research, um, to do user-centric research and find out what is the actual problem uh, we want to an answer with a specific problem. And we also specifically do uh, methodological advice and support for uh, projects of the Berlin Smart City Strategy, Gemeinsam Digital Berlin, Together with Digital Berlin. So we support the Senate Chancellery in the implementation mm. of this strategy.
3: Thank you so much. And you ran for Kreuzberg because it's uh, the coolest uh, part of the city or it's because you live there?
0: Um, I actually used to live there for the longest time. I then at some point moved to Neukölln, but I was already politically active Ah. there. And Kreuzberg, of course, is the coolest part of Berlin, and especially (laughs) the (laughs) Grafikis, which I ran for, is one of the lovely parts of Kreuzberg.
3: (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, Vishan, tell us also a little bit about um, architecture and urbanism in New York. What do you do?
1: So, uh, Practice for Architecture and Urbanism, or POW for short, is the architecture firm and urban planning firm that I founded about uh, eight years ago now. I've been working as both an architect and urban planner in New York City for almost 30 years uh, and worked uh, uh, for Mayor Bloomberg, actually, right after the events of 9-11 as his uh, planning director for Manhattan for about four years. So it was a very heady, uh, mm-hmm. crazy time, uh, as you can imagine, as we were rebuilding the city. And has some parallels to what it means to rebuild the city after the pandemic. Um, And so we're a private architecture firm, but also we do a lot of thought leadership pieces with nonprofits, with some media organizations. And I also do a great deal of writing separate from the firm. Uh, I just finished my second book that my publisher is texting me about right now, about some text edits, it never ends. Um, And so, um, you know, we're... We're an architecture firm that does a lot of public work, infrastructure work, um, housing, uh, and so on. But at the same time, we also like to contribute to the public dialogue about what makes cities better, just based on my own experiences, but also the interests of the people who work for us. We have about 30 employees. and. Most of them are what I like to call Swiss Army knives. You know, they have a lot of different blades uh, and do a lot of different things. And so they're very interested in uh, what makes cities better, what makes communities better.
3: Thank you so much, Vishan. And you live in New York.
1: I do. Hmm. I do. I've lived there most of my adult life. Although I did my master's thesis uh, on Berlin on the EBA with a particular focus on Kreuzberg. So Kreuzberg <laughs> might be the common thread
0: of this entire conversation. Yeah, and I actually used to live in New York for about uh, three months back in 2015. Ah, there you go, Nicholas. So you have to come back and visit
3: us. <laughs> And Nicholas, what did you do in New York? Uh,
0: I was back then working for Freedom House um, ah. on democracy hmm. projects. Um,
3: ah, perfect.
0: And on their um, on the internet freedom work as well. Um, and generally, I also have a background as a researcher in um, anti-corruption work. So I I did my PhD on the use of digitization mm-hmm. in anti-corruption. Worked also in the international development field for a while, but then decided I really wanted to uh, put my efforts in making the place I live in in Berlin a better place.
3: Um, thank you so much. Um, this is uh, so we are bringing two together who belong together also on this podcast. Um, and I hope that a new friendship could emerge from this. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. What I would love to do with you, um, the participants of our project, uh, Future Cities, um, develop different scenarios uh, for the year 2040. And I would like to introduce those scenarios to you um, and then um, hear a few quotes from our participants and then also discuss these scenarios with you. Um, And I would also like to discuss with you how we avoid uh, the bad scenarios and how we can get to the better ones. Um, And I would like to start with our scenario red in which cities struggle with unsustainable development and governance stagnation, leading to socioeconomic inequality, fragmented communities, and climate-related challenges. And root causes include automation-induced jobs, widening social disparities, underestimated climate impacts, and um, and economic strains. And um, maybe we can now listen to a few um, of our participants um, who participated in the project. And uh, the first one I would like to invite to join us electronically is uh, Sana Richter, a project participant from the Senate Department um, for Urban Development, Building and Housing um, in Berlin, explaining how the cities reach this red scenario tonspur up. The city governments focus on short-term solutions and the mayors are only driven by events and crisis and not really in uh, a state that they are proactively shaping the future. And then there's come somehow how a tipping point and after this then you really are not uh, able anymore to come to uh, sustainable um, structures that can handle this kind of crisis. In comparison to our red scenario, we also have the scenario green. Um, in which cities are thriving with innovative governance, renewable energy, reduced inequalities, climate resilience, a balanced economy, uh, well-managed immigration and data-driven initiatives. Um, And these positive changes result from uh, collective understanding, uh, Very good legislative adjustments and empowered cities working as effective um, change agents for sustainability and equity. And we are now listening to uh, Ellie Lippman, a project participant from Move LA in Los Angeles, um, who said at our final conference the following on the scenario green.
2: But I also want to make the point about this scenario that not everything is absolutely perfect and rosy. And that's really important as well right you know this is in some idyllic society there aren't and it's not to also say that there aren't crises in governments right they're just handled better than they have previously or in the other scenarios
3: and one of the other scenarios is the scenario blue which the participants developed um, in which cities are at the critical juncture Balancing between collapse and sustainable development um, and recent efforts have reduced social inequalities, promoted affordable housing and improved education and ecosystems are actually flourishing. But renewable energy goals still face critical challenges. And cities face climate change consequences like extreme weather events and an influx of climate refugees and transparent governance systems really are um, not up to scratch. The last scenario, um, for the last scenario, let's hear from Nitra Dedweiler, a project participant from Civil Bikes Atlanta, describing the blue scenario at the final conference as follows. I think our
2: motto is a good in-between of both these scenarios. You know, it's a little bit of pessimism with a glimmer of hope. (laughs) And I will say that our thinking really can be summarized in like these two statements, that cities are at a critical juncture between collapse and sustainability, um, and that successful efforts to reduce
3: social inequalities, but climate impacts caught the cities off guard. So now how it is always with those scenario-building exercises, um, you usually have a good, a bad, and an in-between. Um, and um, part of the way to get there is already also the goal, bringing people together and talking about these scenarios. Um, But what I would now love to discuss with you, Niklas, and Vishan, where do you think do we currently stand? Um, are we on the way to the red scenario? Or are we on the way to the green scenario? Um, what is your What is your view? How optimistic or pessimistic are you? Maybe we can start with Vishan.
1: Well, I think we're firmly in purple. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, the, 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 I believe firmly that cities are our last and best hope as a species that doesn't mean that things are going terribly well in cities. It's just that cities provide, I think, both the physical and the digital toolkit to make things better, because they connect us as people and as communities. So I I actually would like to go back to your UN data point that you started the conversation with, Stormy. Because we hear this all the time, that the world is urbanizing. We've been hearing this for some time. I think sometime around 2007, we heard that there was this inflection point where more people live in urbanized areas than rural areas around the planet. But the problem with that statistic is that it it kind of blankets over how the UN captures this notion of what an urbanized area is. Right, So those are usually metropolitan statistical areas, which means that it doesn't mean people are living necessarily in cities. Suburban growth has been massive all around the world. Billions of people since the 1990s have moved into the middle class from poverty in India, in China, in Turkey, in Russia, in Brazil. And that's a very good thing. The problem is they have moved largely into suburban areas that have very, very uh, uh, negative impacts on the environment in particular. And so when we say people are urbanizing, we need to be very careful about what that really means. Uh, At the same time, in the global south, you have about 2,000 people a day moving into a city like Mumbai. And they're not moving into suburban circumstances. They're moving into informal economies that some people call slums but are actually Mm. are actually more complicated than that and so i think our cities are in this perpetual purple zone amongst your green red and blue scenarios in that there are people who are constantly modeling better ways of living in terms of the environment and in terms of equity. So take bicycling, for example, as a a means of mobility around the world. It it went from something that was very commonplace in China to something that almost got eradicated in China Mm -hmm. and in Vietnam, uh, and then suddenly became something that was like a cause celebrated in Copenhagen and in Amsterdam. And now there's actually a reasonable bicycle modal share in New York City, and we're building bike lanes in places that I never thought we'd be building bike lanes. We're still in a transition zone, so there there are ideas like that. But at the same time, when you look at the inequity statistics in our cities, right, they are abysmal. They you know like we in New York City is incredibly segregated incredibly racially segregated segregated in terms of income. So our cities have a long way to go, but what I believe is that our cities have the toolkit to fix the problems if we choose to do it. And the last thing I would just say is, your first participant said something about how mayors and politicians focus on the short term. And I think that is the big problem that we have, that we have a a long-term set of challenges in terms of climate inequity, um, technology that the sh- I watch it every day with our government. the short term way in which they approach these things uh, will not solve the longer term problems, and there is no reward for them politically to solve longer term problems.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and I think that's one of our biggest challenges as a as a governance system in democracy.
3: Thank you so much, Vishan. And uh, we come back to these points you raised, um, I'm pretty sure, later on, when we also look at the solutions more. Um, I now want to bring in Niklas. Um, Do you share these observations also for Berlin? How pessimistic, optimistic are you and where do you see the challenges?
0: I would agree, as in we ca- you can't say we're on the road to one or the other. We have, mm-hmm. I think, elements of everything. Also, what your participant said, but there's of course a nature of scenarios. We have elements of all of these that we see, and of course, um, you rightly put, pointed out, it really depends on the context that we talk that we talk about, right? If you're looking at some mm-hmm. Scandinavian countries, that you you see a lot of like scenarios or like a lot of. Traits of the green scenario, right? You see a, a much more a c- city center that is much more equipped to deal for, bi- for bikes, for example, or that where people are cycling much more. Where there is a what's more equitable society, that you see a lot of sustainable housing that is there's building, but you also have problems with rents, right? With rents rising and with house housing prices like um, like basically pricing out certain groups of society. At the same time, you have cities. Um, in uh, in Asia that are basically becoming mega mega cities and agglomerations um, where, which face completely different um, challenges but also give different opportunities for like reducing travel times and getting people together. But it's really hard to see like one global trend um, in the cities. In Berlin I think it's a bit similar. We have um, a lot of challenges that we face. I think um, the um blue scenario that you described that we will have to deal with climate emergencies that is something we will not be able to escape from um, it's something we have to prepare for um, that we have to like find ways to mitigate to mitigate and we are in some some regards, we are on a way there. There's some like projects that look at like how to deal with um, strong rainfall. Um, we try to um, we develop concepts like the sponge city, where like it's easier to deal with um, heavy heavy rainfalls. It will be a problem in Berlin. We have some initiatives that look at how to better use water, um, which will be a problem in the in the. Climate crisis here. Um, Brandenburg Berlin is a very dry area. And we noticed that in not this year, but the two years before that, we had like, entirely dry years and we will have to find a way to deal with that. Berlin already knows that by 2040, 2050, we will have a climate more similar to Toulouse than to today's Germany. And that's something we have to adapt to. We'll have to adapt the trees that we plant. And, um, the way that we, run, we build houses, so they become more equipped to deal with heat. And that is something I think that people are preparing for and that people know that we have to prepare for. But at the same time, we still have, of course, challenges like um, an administration that has some old structures, which doesn't find it ha- easy to um, take fast decisions and that rather like, you know, has um, responsibilities that are, are split between different departments. And that, of course, is a challenge if we want to like sort of mm. take decisive decisions to adapt to climate change.
3: Vishan, looking at New York, um, what would you say... Uh, could, could you identify a project um, where you say, this is a project which really gets us to the green scenario, um, and this is something which you're observing in um, in New York, which you find truly troublesome because it could get us more to the red scenario?
1: We have a very good track record uh, building housing near mass transportation, especially our subway system. Our subway system is quite old; it's quite vulnerable to flooding. But you know, we're the only city in the United States that's actually a transit-oriented city in the sense of you know eighty or ninety percent of New Yorkers. Uh, take some form of mass transit or walk to work, uh, which is very much of a European model. It's, but it, it, it's extremely foreign in most of the United States. And even in the cities that have mass transportation or think of themselves as more transit-oriented, like San Francisco or California, or even like Washington, D.C., people drive everywhere. And so I think we do this thing very well of building housing near transit. We've slowed down because we have a lot of community sentiments that are anti-housing or anti-new housing. And that's very deep, that's deeply problematic. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, right now there is a, a, we're a coastal city. We are obviously very uh, deeply impacted by what was known as Superstorm Sandy. It wasn't even a hurricane, but it was a very intense storm that came up the East Coast. And it actually very, Disproportionately impacted the poor, so people who are living in social housing uh, were deeply, deeply impacted. And so, the city, state, and federal government has have embarked upon a, a coastal resiliency project where we're basically building enormous berms uh, near the waterside. You know, things that you might see more often in uh, the Netherlands uh, and so forth. Um, to protect New York City. And whereas I think that could be a very good thing, it means that we therefore have to double down on what makes New York City sustainable and resilient, which means improve the mass transit system, build more housing, um, especially now with in the post-pandemic circumstance with commercial office being less of a driver for New York City's economy I think housing is one of the most central things that we have as a driver, not just to drive our economy, but to drive our culture, right? In terms of making sure that we remain a mixed income place, Mm. a racially mixed place. You know, because I always, you know, Nicholas was talking about Scandinavian countries earlier. And, you know, as someone who, we all have for years been reading about Copenhagen and how they solved every problem. There was this absolutely startling article in the New York Times about how Denmark deals with communities of color and immigrant communities, how they're being moved around, uh like literally forcibly moved around by the government. And this is this is so foreign to the years of a New Yorker. Like this is it's un it's unthinkable. Right? We have the most diverse city in the world. And we have it because of our housing stock and in the way our metro system connects that housing stock. And that's what we have to keep building, even though we're a coastal city, because we're putting billions of dollars into coastal resiliency. So now what are we protecting? We shouldn't just be protecting Wall Street and our financial district, which will probably all just go digital anyway, right? Uh, it largely has. Right, what we should be protecting are our communities and the kind of rich diversity that has made New York, New York, really what it is since its inception.
3: Thank you so much, Rishan. The same question to you, Niklas. What is Berlin doing? Pretty well, and uh, where are? You, what are you worried about when you look at Berlin?
0: And Berlin, I would also say transport. Berlin um, actually has a pretty dense and pretty good transport network, um, and they are also working on. Extending it and also modernizing it. We all know it's a struggle, right? Like, and um, we all know like the, the the subway system in New York is fantastic, but it's but it's all needs renovations. Of course, like in Berlin, we also need renovations of, of specific line, and every Berliner will hate on the transport as, as soon as they get a chance to. But uh, we have a pretty good um system here, and we also have um we have a good way of thinking microservices and micro-mobility services together um with transport. So there is um an app here called the Jelby App, which um, the Berlin Transport um, Authority developed, um, which basically gives you an account. If you register there, you can get an account for both like um, shared mobility cars, for um, these little scooters, for also um, electric scooters to sit, on, to sit on, for rental for rental bikes, and it also gives you the opportunity to buy to buy a ticket for the transport. It basically, connects all these different services and also shows you routes, how to connect these, and that's very. Um, It's a very good system that that works here in Berlin, actually not that many people yet use. But Mm -hmm. we also, of course, struggle um, with similar issues with rising rent. Berlin um, has a very specific rental market where um, back in the 90s, there was a lot of of space still left in Berlin. Um, A lot of people started moving here because of the cheap rents. Now we have um, some districts where rents have increased by over 100% in the last 10 years. Um, so it's quite, it's a struggle for people and also the attractiveness of Berlin as sort of a, um, global hub for innovation and a global hub for people to like move, move to where they can feel free. Obviously diminishes when uh, we don't find a way to deal with the rental situation. And at the same time, this sort of culture is something else I would like to highlight in Berlin, like the culture of Berlin as a free as a free city where people can try themselves out, where people like where you have a really rich uh, cultural scene, where you have a rich startup scene. There's something very unique here, and um, it has also a feeling for people if they if they can afford still to live here, then it's a feeling of being open, being able to take part in society.
1: I just wanted to add something to what Nicholas just said, which is I think Berlin is unique among major world cities in terms of its affordability. And I think it has created this extraordinarily vibrant youth culture and has had that youth culture in terms of the arts and technology and all sorts of things because it's been able to maintain an affordability that we have not in New York, that London hasn't been able to do, that Tokyo certainly hasn't been able to, that most major world cities haven't. And so I'm I'm very happy to hear Nicholas talking about this as an issue because I think it is so critical to what makes your city special, uh, you know.
0: Absolutely, and it's it's funny to have this uh, discussions about that also with Berliners, um, because when you tell some some people would tell you like yeah, of course, Berlin is a global metropolitan hub. Like we want to become like New York, London, or Paris. We want to be seen as a city like on a similar scale, but a lot of Berliners will tell you, no, please don't. Um,
3: <laughs> <laughs> we, like we, like I
0: personally I, lo- I love New York. I, I used to live in London as well. Like I like I like these cities a lot. But yeah, a lot of Berliners will tell you like look because these are cities that are not affordable for ordinary people. These are not they're not attractive for us to live in because life isn't just not comfortable or uh, as comfortable as it is um here. Because you yeah, have quality of life here that's still of course related to comparatively lower, lower prices and that is something, that of course, the city ideally should
3: mm-hmm. uh, yeah,
0: keep because it makes Berlin Berlin.
3: Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, but as you also mentioned, the prices are going up, um, so it becomes more difficult and some, I mean, quite a few parts of Berlin are also gentr- gentrified and people are being pushed out, so we might be on the way to something else. Um, right, Niklas?
0: And well, and it's also uh, the problem that you see on the rental market. In Berlin is not only the price; it's also availability. That yeah, people true. like now, when you apply for an apartment in Berlin, it takes you like you have to send hundreds out. You have to send out hundreds of letters. Um, you go to a flat viewing with 100, 200, 300 people um, going there as well. And it's really tough market. Not like even if you can afford it, in a way, it's uh, it can be a very tough rental market. And that's of course a problem that the city is very aware of as well.
3: Yeah, yeah, and it's a it's a cause for celebration if you get an apartment, actually. Um, so, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, one of the issues I now would love to um, discuss with you is something which is also mentioned a lot, just like the data I presented in the beginning, and which uh, Vishan correctly pointed out that a lot of people are doing this all the time. Um, what people also do all the time is refer to smart cities and saying that we need to have smarter cities. And that's what I would like to discuss with you. What are smart cities? What are we talking about when we talk about smart cities? Um, and then we will also listen to um, another short snippet of one of our participants. But first, since you work on data, um, Niklas, what is a smart city?
0: A smart city is a city that uses technology for to improve the lives of its citizens. In a very broad, in a broad, very broad fashion, and it's interesting. It's an interesting concept because it has very much changed over the years. So sm- the smart city term originally came from the sort of marketing departments of big tech companies uh, that try to market sensors technology to cities to like say, look, you have to build these in everywhere, and life become will become a bright future. And it was a very technology focused term. But we have seen a, d- a movement, a development over the years where, um, at least in most. So are many places you have a very critical debate now surrounding the term smart city. And you have a um, debate that focuses much more on human-centered cities, cities that really look at improving the lives of of, um, the people that live there and make basically plan the city better. And for that you can use technology, you can use data and can be a tool for that, but it's not the prime objective to sort of technify the city.
3: And Vishan, what is a smart city to you?
0: Well, I've never liked
1: the term, to be honest, so I'll do respect, Nicholas. I just, um, because, partly because of the origins of it, as as, as, as uh, Nicholas just described, but to me, it has a larger problem, which is the connotation that the cities that came before were somehow dumb, right? <laughs> I mean, that's that's the basic implication, right? That before a bunch of technologists came along. And yet, you know many many people myself included believe that cities are the best invention of our species and that the, inte- the, the the natural intelligence of collective living which is something that dates back to antiquity right and you find it in almost every culture in antiquity right ancient china ancient india across uh, the levant into mesoamerica and what's interesting is and This was more true in the 20th century. Economists and technologists really were trying to sell us on the idea that cities existed for these economic reasons, that we became homo sapiens, we created more food than we could consume, we needed a market, we needed to barter, so we created cities. The problem with that story is that it doesn't doesn't actually comport with history. You know, human beings built cities... And built, you know, things like pyramids, which are, you see all across antiquity for, um, spiritual reasons and communal reasons that had nothing to do with the economy. And so, um, you know, even it, you know, when the telephone was invented, right, we had people telling us that we wouldn't need cities anymore. And of course, the ultimate test of this theory was the pandemic, Mm. right? That everyone could just work from home. We now had the technology. And therefore, you didn't need cities anymore. What did we see coming out of the pandemic? And not only are our big cities largely fine, but you saw a loneliness epidemic and a mental health epidemic come out of the pandemic because you had so many people separated from communal living. And so, I have, I love technology, I have no problem with the idea of technology making people's lives better. I have a problem with this overlay of this notion that technology by itself makes us smarter, right? Because we sometimes forget, with that assertion, the wisdom that's inherent in all that we have done as a civilization and built up as a civilization, right? In terms of how we know how to connect with each other, right? And so I'm even more of an architect and an urbanist in a technological environment because I believe (laughs) that much more that we need physical spaces to connect us. Uh, And to me, the pandemic only proved that more.
3: Yeah, thank you so much. Um, Maybe we should talk about smarter cities than the past, but that still doesn't get us away from the connotation that we weren't smart before. Um, I would love to um, bring in a voice from one of our participants, Alanus von Radecki, CEO of Data Competence Center for Cities and Regions. Um, And let's just briefly hear what um, our participant has to say.
0: But um, the challenging question behind it is, of course, also, how do you get it um, set up in in a city government, right? So there is a lot of work to be done to enable cities on thinking about data in a more strategic way, right? Understanding that cities actually sit on a lot of data. They really need to um, exploit it, and they can exploit it, and that new forms of collaboration are required. Also, you know, with civil society, but also with the private sector to, to work together to come to to really good solutions.
3: So Niklas, data is good to make better informed decision. (laughs) Data can also be bad if it's biased, right? Or bad data. So how do you get good data into good governance?
0: (laughs) I mean, there's of course many ways. I think the first way is, of course, to make data available. I mean, we have, of course, we have um, privacy regulations and we have to take care what data we make available. But generally, as, your participant also said, like it's absolutely correct. That cities have a lot of data, and not all of it is open and available to work with. And we can, uh, we still have a lot of potential there. And I mean, um, basically, we also do not usually link um, data to another. Like we usually have data sets that are that are lying in like data. Data chests, I would say, like <laughs> independent from others, and we can um, usually combine them to make um, potential tools to help plans plan a city better. Um, how do you how do you do that? Is a very broad question, right? It's like um, th- we have several problems in like c- in the like, cities where people are not aware what they have the data. We here in Berlin, um, one other project of the Technologie Stiftung um, is the Open Data Information Center ODIS um, Open. Open Data Informationsstelle, um, they are a project also financed by the city government and they're trying to help open up data sets uh, from different government departments and also show potentials that open data has. And that sometimes can be something um, where you don't necessarily think that this data will be helpful. Like, for example, um, here at CityLab, we found a few years ago, we found a data set of all the city trees. Um, and what kind of trees they are and where they stand um, on a map. So we thought, what can we do with our data? In the end, we um, basically built a tool, it's called Geesting Keats, that is... um, there's a tool for people that want to water the trees in their in their city, right? And we basically so um, put the data that we found onto a map and made it available to people just to use. And now we have a tool where people can like mark when they watered the a tree and sort of coordinate their uh, their efforts to keep their city green. But in the end, like what I'm trying to po- show with that is like it's um, the data was just one part in this in this process in building this tool. Um, but we made it available or we made it more accessible for people to use it and to order to support efforts that they were into anyway.
3: Yishan, the I, issue of data. Yeah, I
0: don't think I have that much to add to
1: that. Nicholas is the expert here. I would just say that um, the more, you know, flat, and open, we can make it all, as opposed to vertical and controlled. I mean, so for instance, you know, this summer, we had an enormous amount of rain in New York City. And and we had a rainstorm a few Fridays ago that basically shut huge parts of the city down. It it wasn't a hurricane, it was just rain. It's extraordinary. And we really had very little information what streets were open, what streets were closed, what neighborhoods were in the most distress. And, you know, what I kept thinking is could this be more like ways where, you know, you had users giving real-time information into a network that everyone could see very transparently instead of it all going into a government website and then all having to get processed and going back out. You know, that it seems to me is, especially with climate change, a real challenge because these, these events happen so quickly, these climate events. And, and I think People on the ground know more than the government knows when things are happening. And how that information gets shared, I think, is a solvable challenge, it would seem to me. I'm not the person to solve it, but mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but but it just, that seems to me to be one of the big problems, that there's this desire to centralize all that information with the government, and I'm not sure that that is the best way to approach it.
0: No, I think it's also about connecting uh, government and civil society actors or government and business actors. And it's for the government, it, it's the role is to provide a way to also exchange the data. And um, building a data exchange platform, for example, for, for city data, it has to include stakeholders from the private sector because they have a lot of, a lot of data. It's just it's not easy to find data governance models that... Um, are actually you know finding ways how to govern this data, like who has access to it or rather who can contribute, how who has responsibility for it. These are like open questions in data governance, which people are working on though, on solutions. Mm-hmm. Actually, and also um on the the example that you just, you just mentioned, I actually met a project um a few years back when I um when I lived in New York, they see um human- Humanitarian Open Street Map Project, which is basically a group of people contributing to open street maps and who do in real time contribute data on what the situation on the ground like after um, some humanitarian crisis struck, let's say an earthquake or heavy, heavy rainfall, and then you have like online a map of like how the situation is now on the ground where you where you can go where emergency services can go and they're usually much faster than um, government services are. And that's an example. You can mm-hmm. harness data from citizens, but you have to give them the opportunity to do so.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, uh, Niklas and Vishan. And both of you, I mean, obviously, touched several times on the issue of climate change. Um, and um, what you illustrated so so um, so persuasively is that it is not just a warming of cities, um, but that it is also extreme weather events and uh, cities have to become more resilient. Um, and another issue we discussed in our um, project is also the issue of energy, um, energy production, and energy consumption um, in cities, obviously very closely connected also with climate change. Um, and I would like to bring in another of our um, speakers and participants, uh, Julia Epp, who is uh, a co-founder of Women in Green Hydrogen and uh, a research fellow at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact and Research. And uh, she will say a little bit on cities and energy. So cities are pretty much energy black holes Um they don't really have a lot of space to produce their own renewable
0: energies and they have issues even in activating that space that they have. So sol- solar power plants would be really, really good in cities, but it's really hard to get them implemented because they have different ownership structures. Um, you have yeah, different social groups, very different backgrounds, different problems, different interests. And I think uh, this pre-existing system in cities, for example, district heating, that is often based on
3: gas or on um, coal energy and these pathways that already exist to change that is really, really difficult. So, Vishan, how do we make cities more climate resilient and and address this issue? But uh, she said the energy black holes of cities.
1: (laughs) First of all, I really... I really reject this black hole (laughs) characterization because what everyone needs to remember is cities use a lot of energy because lots of people live there, right? And so when you look at energy consumption per capita of our big cities, we are the lowest users of energy per capita of most of the people on the planet. Now, there are some cities that are crazy off the chart for different reasons like Dubai. But most cities, New York, Berlin, London, Hong Kong, we are the lowest users of energy per person. And so we have to constantly Mm -hmm. remind our federal governments, right, that we are actually the solution. They are the problem. Right. So when you look at so where does most of the climate change come from? It comes from the suburbs. We have clear data on this. We were just talking about data. The data on this is not arguable. Right? He, right the the carbon emissions per capita in the suburban world is just it's mind blowing. Right? And so cities Yes, we have a lot of energy demands, but the way we live is the solution to the problem. Mm-hmm. The problem with how cities... Your speaker was very right. We have very fixed energy systems that are deeply problematic in our cities. They're reliant on fossil fuel. We have transmission line problems. We were very excited in New York City because there were several major offshore wind projects that had been actually approved by the government. And then the private companies that were doing it decided to put them on hold because of inflation, that their numbers stopped working. Um, And so the hydrogen thing, very interesting. If hydrogen can basically act as a battery Right, so that you can power hydro. You know, my understanding of it is that you can power it through solar in terms of its creation and then run it through more ordinary vehicles and ordinary plant systems. That's great if it will work, right? But, um, so but cities are going to need billions upon billions of dollars, euro, whatever you want to call it in order to convert their transmission lines, convert their power systems, go to all electric. So we're in New York City, we're going to all electric building systems in the hope that we will go to a renewable electric power grid, right? By call it 2040, which I think is too late, right? But the problem is we have to do this by ourselves without very much help from the federal government. Now, President Biden has done some very important things. He's done some very, very important things in terms of this. But generally, we have been fighting with the federal government on these Mm -hmm. things. So to me, there's a political overlay to this issue, which is having lots of people live together, use mass transit, live in flats, is all very, very good for the environment. So we just need the federal government's help to transition our power systems to make that form of living even more sustainable than it is. So it's actually the green hole.
3: (laughs) The green (laughs) hole. Um, And you said to make it even more sustainable than it already is. Yes. Niklas, how do we do this in Berlin? And how do we make ourselves more resilient?
0: That's an excellent excellent question. I'm not sure I'm the best expert to answer it, but I can try at least. Um, I think we we know a lot of things that we can do and we have to do, we just need to use the potential. Like um, your participant, you mentioned um, solar right in the city. We do not yet use a fraction of the space for solar that we could. Like um, there wasn't an initiative in Berlin a few years back to use at least all public buildings for solar. And um, we should start there, but we also should go on the rental houses. And as she said, there is a problem of different and differentiated ownership, but there can be um, supports support programs to incentivize that. But then at the same time, Berlin um, in a way is, of course, an island, if you wanted once so an island, but in the middle of of the state of Brandenburg, right? And, like, and Berlin, in many um, in many regards, cooperates with its surroundings and should also cooperate more in um, the energy supply. Generally, uh, Germany is on a good way to the transition to, um, to green uh, energy, but that um, as also your participant said, of course, doesn't necessarily um, bring the solution to um, to the heating question. And there we really need to um, make much, much bigger efforts to get away from fossil fuels because at the moment we are not, we are not really on the right track to um, have a transition there. Berlin at the moment, I think, has plans to be carbon neutral by uh, 2045, which is definitely too late if you ask me. But I know from all experts that it will be very hard to reach goals at, uh, earlier than that.
3: Michan, you're nodding. Are you, do you agree? <laughs>
0: well, yeah. It just takes us a, as
1: democracies clearly. Like you can see what's happening in China. Democracies move much more slowly, uh, and it is it is a challenge for climate change because we, you know, it, it's just going to take time to fix these things. But we have to have more of a sense of urgency, and I. I sense some of that in the political climate, but it is—it's—it's it's very difficult. It's very difficult, especially mm. because, as I said, the main root cause of the problem sees don't view themselves as the problem and are very resistant to change. Mm. Very resistant.
3: Mm. We are. Um almost already coming to the end of our podcast, um, and time is running so fast, but there's one big issue which I need to talk to you about, and that is the issue of social justice, um, and also the issue um, of migration. And our participants, when they discussed this, said, we can learn a lot from the United States and from U.S. cities. <laughs> and um, Rishan, you're smiling and raising your eyebrows. But um, let's hear from one of the participants, and uh, it is Alexander Cox, um, who is the former former deputy director for economic mobility at the White House and who was recently a German chancellor fellow. And let's uh, hear from Alexander what he has to say about this.
2: One thing that in Germany is really relevant to what US cities are dealing with is with migration and refugees and really understanding how do we integrate new populations, how do we create an open city, and one where multiple people, no matter their background, have access to opportunity. And you'll see in the United States, with uh, our especially our southern border, we're facing very similar questions. Cities from New York to Chicago, L.A., they are all dealing with a wave of influx of migrants who are all coming for opportunity, and that's what cities provide, right? That's why they've provided for generations and generations and what they will continue to be in a magnet for. And if we're able to build truly inclusive cities that have opportunity and have affordability and embrace multiculturalism, then that is something that can be really shared across countries.
3: Vishan, are we there yet?
1: (laughs) <laughs> no, we're not there yet. Look, this is a deeply personal issue to me. I mean, my parents emigrated to the United States with very little money. And I actually think the United States is the only country in the world where me, looking the way I look, could have done what I was been able to do. And I think New York in particular. Because no one in New York asks you where you're from, they ask you where you're going. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, this, this idea of skin color, national heritage and so forth, almost as secondary to kind of your ambitions and aspirations. And that's kind of the promise of New York City. Um, and so I always listen to my, you know, my, my very liberal friends very carefully when they talk about, for instance, the extraordinary housing systems in Vienna or the bicycling in Copenhagen, and all of these things that you hear about in Western Europe as enormous social advancements. And I always have the question, but yes, will that work in an open immigration society? Or is it basically about a closed cultural society where where you can extend social benefits within a closed culture because you understand that the number of people participating in those benefits is closed. Now, Berlin, I mean, Kreuzberg, at least when I was last in Kreuzberg, it was heavily Turkish and, like, it was a very, very uh, mixed, diverse environment. Who gets what rights in society, I think, is a very open idea in the United States. But it's also why we see the rise of people like Trump, right? Mm -hmm. Because people resist this idea. and so they have, uh, so we have this interesting dynamic in the United States where we have conservatives who claim that the country is full. And then we have progressives that claim that their cities are full and don't want any more housing built in their cities. And we have to, I mean, this is nonsense. The United States is an enormous country. It's an enormous, enormous physical landmass that has plenty of room for people and whose whole history is based on this notion of immigrant growth. The thing that I think we have to remember about immigration is immigrants are inherently optimists. You have to be an optimist to leave your home, right? And believe your life is gonna be better elsewhere. That energy is some of the most important energy that a society can harness, right? And in fact, I think it's that energy that scares some native populations because it it creates a restlessness in society. It means you can't just rest, right? Immigrants are very restless people. Um, and so, uh, but, Look, I can't speak to the rest of the world, but I I know that this if if, we, if if the United States is going to stay the best part of what it is, it has to continue to move in this direction of being an open immigrant country. Mm. If it doesn't, it's going to evolve into a country none of us recognize.
3: Niklas, you lived in as you said, you lived in New York, you lived in London. You you are now living in Berlin. Um how does this compare? Um, and what could we learn?
0: I do think that you notice that when you live in New York, you notice that when you live in London, it's more, um, let's say, mixed society. Like it's more it's more normal to have different backgrounds. It's very, it's recognized as um, an international city. People, people are from all sorts of different traits and, and backgrounds. And that is totally like normal in Berlin, I think, it also is Berlin is an international city. Berlin is a city of uh, over one hundred and ninety nationalities, but we also have like uh we also see people like sort of retracting in their communities and people mixing maybe a little bit less. I don't know if you notice that you also live you also live in <laughs> Berlin, and it's something that um of course we have to ask ourselves how can we get better in that like for many Germans, um Berlin or at least certain districts for Berlin are. Um, so sort of synonymous with problems um that we have with failed integration and the and the question is how do we get out of that? And I don't really um have the answer for mm-hmm. it. I think Berlin has a very international spirit in many regards, um and we have to we have to keep that. but Berlin also now in some uh, studies appears as a city that's not very welcoming to to foreigners also because uh, the administrative system isn't isn't really equipped for it, right? It's like and it's true, like try to um deal with all your administrative needs when you don't speak german in a in a german city and it's quite bureaucratic in in many ways and that's all like steps we can take to, um to get better i think um and at the same time when you look at how we have dealt with uh, refugees like berlin has become better in in that. We have become better in providing refugee housing in the last years. In 2015, the city was uh, quite overwhelmed. And now we have become better in in doing that. And the government has become uh, better in this this regard. And so we do uh, make progress here, but we still have a long way to go, I
3: think. So we definitely want to be optimist. Optimists (laughs) when we talk about um, urban spaces, but we also definitely still have a little bit of a way to go. Um, And it is um, a joint effort. Um, And this brings us, unfortunately, to the end of our podcast. Very last question, more on a personal note. Um, Vishan, if we came with our group, our project group to New York, what would you show to us? Your favorite spot.
1: Well, I'm (laughs) totally biased. I would show you... uh, I've been working on a site in the Brooklyn waterfront called the Domino Sugar Refinery and we just finished a building there and I'm I think it's the best new thing in New York but I'm completely biased but I would bring you there with uh, with uh, <laughs> high hopes that you would love it.
3: That sounds so cool. Um and Nicholas?
0: Um I'm, of course, also a little bit biased, but I would probably <laughs> uh, bring the group to Tempelhofer Flughafen, to Tempelhofer Fels, huh. uh, which is a very unique spot. And Vishania, we, we yeah, you, you <laughs> talked about, like, we have to um, accept the fact that we have to build more and build, uh, uh, like, wherever we get the space, in, in a way. But Tempelhofer Feld is one of these, like... Topics in Berlin where we discuss a lot like should we build housing there, should we not as a big open space, but it also shows all the creativity we have in Berlin, where people like uh, just sort of they run their own gardens, they do sports, this is a place for really you to visit where you can feel the vibrancy of Berlin and also of course it's also next to the offices of city lab Berlin, which you're also welcome to visit <laughs> yeah
1: yeah i've seen I've seen a lecture on this it's very interesting, it's very ah. interesting, so I'll go there with you.
3: So we just have to get you two together and then um, visit the favorite spots. Thank you so very much uh, for taking the time um, to be with us today and this podcast. That concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for everybody uh, listening in. And uh, we hope to see and hear you soon again. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for having us. Thank you.